Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, your weekly geeky squeak with me, Christian Schiller. You can find more about the show at christianschiller.com slash podcasts. Apologies for no show last week. I was out recording lots and lots of interviews at KubeCon, the Kubernetes conference in Barcelona. And then I had some other travel too. I also went to the weirdest conference, but one of the best I've ever been to in my entire life. And I go to a lot of conferences. Uh, that was the Code Garden from Umbraco in a dent, which is, I know not how you pronounce it, but it's how my Anglo way would pronounce it in Denmark. Um, I didn't really know very much about Umbraco when I got there, but I had a very good time. And the Thursday night bingo party was perhaps one of the strangest experiences of my life. <laughs> but good. Anyway, this week I have an interview with Mark Maron of Microsoft's Bosky language, a new sort of a prototype stage language that uh, has some interesting constructs in it. And we had quite a fascinating interview about the history of programming languages, about the future of programming languages, and all sorts of other things. But let's kick off the show with a handful of links. First, more news from Microsoft. I've got two companies dominating my news items this week a little. This is uh, from the Microsoft blog about Edge being available for macOS again. The first time there has been a... Microsoft browser on macOS since Internet Explorer 5.5, which I remember. I can't entirely say if I remember it fondly or not. This was in the macOS 9 days, pre-OS X, pre-OS 10, however you want to call it. And this is the first Microsoft browser back on macOS. It's Chromium skin, so it's Google Chrome-esque. Also reminds me a little bit of Brave, various other browsers that use Chromium under the hood. I have been playing around with the beta for a little while. I haven't done too much with it yet, so I may uh, have some more hands-on news soon. But strange, Microsoft have become a very different and odd company and much more open-minded to these things. And uh, I was actually sort of slightly surprised that having a Microsoft browser back on macOS wasn't greeted with as much kind of <laughs> fanfare as I would have expected. I guess a lot of Mac users these days have not been using the Mac as long as I have and don't remember when we last had uh, Internet Explorer, <laughs> or Edge as it's called now. Um, not necessarily much to read in this blog post, uh, but if you're interested in trialling it, uh, and it is cross-platform, mostly cross-platform on desktop and mobile, then uh, head over to the blog and uh, give it a whirl. Next in new applications coming to desktop is an application I think I have spoken a little bit about on the uh, podcast, but I've definitely written about a lot. And this is a little niche, but I'm going to promote it anyway. This is a tool called Veil. Uh, Veil is a language linter made by a very uh, helpful and friendly programmer over in Portland. And um, I've been using it a lot on uh, text editors, Visual Studio Code, and Atom, and on command line to lint my technical copy. Or you could use it for other copy too, for various styles that I want to check for, things like passive voice, future tense in-house style guides, etc., etc. Up until this point, it has just been a command line and editor tool. But the developer has for some time been working on trying to expand it out onto desktop, uh, including Word, um, Google Docs, and uh, other uses. And I have been trialling the Veil server that enables just that. It's early days. I found a few issues already that I need to let the developer know about. Um, but if you're interested, you can go and read this blog post and he may let you into the testing program if you so desire. And you can test Veil to see how well it works on the desktop aimed at less technical users. And I find this quite fascinating because it is effectively an open source tool. The server component, not so much, but the kind of core of it and the ability to create your personal style guides and things like that is definitely an open process. So it's something that everyone in your team could potentially share in the coming months. This is especially relevant at the moment because Grammarly, which I guess is one of the equivalent tools in this world, although it's not very friendly for tech writers, you have to use a browser extension or the uh, custom desktop application they have, had some controversy with its privacy policy. So if you are wanting to check private documents, then Grammarly may be no longer useful for you. Um, and Veil might be a good alternative in the near future. So watch this space. I will definitely be reporting back on my experiences with it very soon. Next, two articles from Google. One from XDA Developers, 
by Michelle Rahman on Android Q. Uh, specifically a feature of Android Q that is desktop mode. I have uh, been following this kind of duality of uh, devices and operating systems for some time. If anyone remembers the Ubuntu OS, the Ubuntu phone was attempting to do this. But I'm guessing that Ubuntu as a mobile and desktop OS were not quite mainstream enough for people to adopt it. And then we've had Samsung DeX and some other attempts. There's been various Kickstarter projects that have also tried to do this. But if Android Q supports it natively, thus uh, getting native support for Samsung, I'm not sure if, it, if they will be um, depreciating DeX or not, but every other device, Pixel devices, I think pretty much any phone running Q, this could be quite fascinating. So you basically you get to a screen and a keyboard, you plug in your phone, and I think USB-C facilitates this even more, I guess. Uh, and you get, I guess, a sort of um, a Chrome OS style interface to your phone. Um, it will obviously need application developers to optimize their applications to work in this mode and a whole bunch of things, but it's quite interesting. While I would still rather have a proper quote-unquote computer than um, the somewhat restricted versions of Chrome OS slash Android, it is an interesting development nonetheless, especially as I have covered many times, Apple and Microsoft are sort of losing interest in their own desktop OSs. Bizarrely, Chrome OS and Linux, mostly because uh, Google are supporting Linux in Chrome OS, are becoming perhaps the only if not most viable options available to anyone who wants a desktop computer. So I really look forward to trying this uh, on my central phone, and that will get queued at some point. So I will get to try it at some point and to see how it works. But if you're interested in finding out some of the features ahead of time, or even if you have a Pixel device and want to test it yourself, you can do just that. Head over to the blog post to find out a bit more about the functionality and get hold of a beta version for your Probably not your mainstream device, but for one of your devices. Next, an article on ZDNet from Stephanie Condron on um, Google opening a privacy center in Germany. Now, this has been interesting. Google were trying to open a large campus here in Berlin. They already have a small office here, but they wanted to open one of their sort of large, like London-style uh, campus uh, offices here. And it was very much uh, rejected and complained and campaigned against by local residents. And it's not happening. They are still going to open a much smaller uh, scaled-down office. But in the meantime, I guess maybe as some sort of compensation, maybe as some kind of dispensation, maybe just as a recognition of something that Google needs to do and Germany kind of being one of the best places for discussing privacy because, well, in my opinion, uh, Germany is somewhat obsessed with privacy, often to the point of extremity. But other countries are possibly not obsessed enough. So, you know, sometimes you need mixtures of opinions to get to a good compromise. But this centre is opening in Munich, actually, not in Berlin. Um, Munich is probably always a safer bet for these kind of corporate offices. <laughs> but it is opening in Munich with the intention of hosting the Google Safety Engineering Centre. This will be specifically to handle GDPR cases and, I guess, preventative and also reactive measures too those regulations, but also encouraging other engineers and other teams in the company to adopt privacy-first policies. So this includes recent Google Chrome cookie policy changes, for example. Early days, not much to hear from them yet, but we, I guess, we'll see if this uh, German influence has anything over Google's privacy policies moving forwards. And two articles in my and finally section, nicely segueing to my interview um, regarding Bosky coming very soon. This was an article on Hacker Noon from Danshuka Madushan on weird programming languages. <laughs> Just a nice little listicle of some programming languages you've probably never heard of, um, maybe have no desire to ever look at again, but and some of the strange syntax that they employ. I have not heard of many of these at all. These include languages like legit, folder, where everything is inside folders, which is quite bizarre. Befunge, where code is represented in 2D space. Brainfuck, I think the, uh, the name probably sums it up. This is a language from the early 90s. It only has eight commands. <laughs> Piet, where you use a colored grid to program. And Malbolge, uh, which is uh, affectionately known as programming from hell. 
and um, it has an example in the blog post of Hello World, but apparently even the programmer of the language doesn't know how to write a program in the language, which is kind of bizarre. I don't know how you can even claim to have necessarily written it if you can't prove you've written it. But anyway, fascinating post. <laughs> Always nice to see these kind of eccentric projects too. And finally, a post on City Lab from Robert English on why New York City stopped building subways. I've been thinking a little bit about this subject generally recently. Um, I think uh, because when we were back in Melbourne, and Melbourne doesn't really have a subway system, they have the inner city loop, which is underground, but it's not really an underground network. Uh, or going back to London, where they have actually built several new tube lines, but just kind of knowing how long they take. And just thinking, when and how were all these underground lines built? A city like Berlin, for example, has many. Uh, they haven't really added very much to those recently. There is a U55, which is not very long and still under development. I guess they're taking a leaf out of the airport building project here. Um, and what what happened to make that rush of energy in the first place and what happened to make it kind of stop? And this article focuses specifically on New York City, whose underground line is actually very old and hasn't added a new line since 1940. And New York's story will be unique to New York. America is always much more obsessed with car driving, which answers a lot of the questions I had, but also city policies. New York went through decades of kind of underinvestment and uh, governmental poverty, I guess, for uh, which would lead to a lack of investment in infrastructure. But it's interesting to see... Uh, how the underground line in just under 40 years developed in New York and then how it's sat pretty much stagnant ever since, basically just in constant maintenance mode because it was so underinvested for so long, any money for the transit authority has to go to keep maintaining and fixing instead of building new lines, which are very expensive. London has added a couple of lines, but not very many, and uh, as cities become more densely built up on, of course, then it's harder and harder to build something like an underground line. So ironically, the bigger a city becomes, the harder it is to build the infrastructure that it needs. Um, and of course, it's hard to pre-plan for the size of a city when you don't really know what's going to happen. Anyway, if you are even partially a transport nerd, I'm not really a transport nerd. I don't necessarily want to be labelled that way, but I just this topic just came into my head and this article appropriately popped up in my feed. I don't think there was any algorithm there, just pure coincidence, serendipity. Um, have a read. It's an interesting insight into to finding out about how these networks that we take for granted may have grown. And now my interview with Mark Maron, I guess, and we do discuss the name he shares with a famous podcaster on the Bosky programming language, a new uh, development language from Microsoft that looks to build a language that follows more modern paradigms instead of paradigms from the 1970s. Enjoy. I so I actually wasn't attending Build this year. I was just been busy with some other stuff. But uh, you know, from everybody I've talked to, sounds like it was it was great. Had a lot of fun, yeah. and you know, some great great open source announcements yep. too. So yeah, no, for I sure. Was, yeah, yeah. There's a, a lot of. Um, I'm still kind of uh, catching up with a lot of them, like some of the terminal things. I I had an interview last week with uh, the people behind Penguin. I don't know if you know that. It uh, doesn't ring a bell, but it's just a, it's a, a, a distribution of Linux optimized for the Windows subsystem. Um, oh, okay, interesting. And it's it's kind of interesting. I I must admit, then when I tried to take it for a test run, I hit a few <laughs> hit a few blocks, of course. But um, yeah, I don't know. I've always been a Mac user for a very long time, but I'm starting to kind of contemplate the the Windows Linux subsystem combination instead and uh, i have a very kind of average windows machine for testing so it's not the best machine to get the best experience but um i figure if i if i enjoy it on that machine then a better one would probably make it even better but um yeah i don't know i'm sort of delving more and more back into that world again after a long yeah, long, yeah. long 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 break <laughs> but, um, i mean i think that's a lot of people like i was at yeah. uh, what was it jsconf eu last year okay yes and yeah. we had a booth where some of the wsl people they, they were there they were showing off you know because 
Node.js and a lot of JavaScript folks, it's like they use Mac. Yeah. And they started using VS Code, but they were still on a Mac. Yeah. And yeah. it was like, let's show them WSL yeah. and let's show them the new, uh, the Surface laptops. Yeah. And yeah. people were just like, the screen on that's amazing. Yeah. I can do all my dev work with WSL. I'm using VS Code anyway. It was, I think people really, you know, liked that, that setup. Yeah. So. Yeah. I used to be a big Atom fan, but I mean, it kind of got left behind and now, well, they're both owned by Microsoft anyway. So it's, 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 it's somewhat, uh, yeah, I don't know. Although for some bizarre reasoning on the, on the Mac, Atom still renders nicer. I don't know if it's a theme I've got or something. I'll have to have a look into it. But, but for general support, I've, I much prefer it. I do a lot of tech writing work and um, so I tend to use editors. I don't use... Um, word or anything like that i, I don't know I, I i think i even let let my office membership lapse because i don't really use oh, it man. so <laughs> sorry <laughs> yeah <laughs> i agree i mean so we do a lot of paper writing in latech right yeah and it's yeah, like, yeah yeah okay you know yeah no i know for that so yeah I, I i i used to use it a bit more in the past um not so much recently bizarrely i i did some weird artistic stuff with it which was kind of fun because it's very opinionated and when you try to go against that opinion it's quite interesting (laughs) (laughs) but uh, yeah anyway let's um let's get stuck in first how do we pronounce the the language name uh so it's bosky bosky okay yes Um, Uh, so it's actually a spanish word yeah Uh, no for sure yeah i recognize that yeah um, yeah just uh, and are you mark Marin? yeah Okay. You know you also share a name with a very famous podcaster. I do. I do. We're in uh we're in a vicious search engine war for, you know, <laughs> did you mean? And I think he's winning hands down. Uh, I think point. he probably wins, but you probably win in terms of yeah. your niche area, I think. In my niche area. I claim one day I'm going to I'm going to come back and yeah. but we'll see, we'll see. Cool. All right. So I also do record calls Generally, they go out as a podcast episode and then they will go out as a kind of more hands-on article at some point, especially with um, with Bosky because it's a programming language. Uh, it's a perfect kind of um, use case to do that. That'll come a bit later. The, the written stuff takes me a little bit longer. The audio version will probably be in two weeks. As I say, I had a, already a kind of Microsoft-heavy show last week. So I'll probably do this one the week after next because I have something that isn't Microsoft for next week, just to break it up a bit. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, you know, with Build going on, it's like there's no yeah, rush on exactly, that. exactly. There's so much that yeah. comes out there. So, yeah, we'll run this as a conversation. So let's just kick off with who you are, uh, where you work and, and what you do, and then we'll kind of go from there into what the language is. Sure, that sounds sounds great. So, I mean, as you're saying, I'm, I'm Mark Marin. I'm in uh, Microsoft, actually in the research group. Um, the, the set of people I work with, we specialize in software engineering, programming languages, runtimes, development tools. So there's just a lot of work we do in that space. And obviously, programming language research fit right in with that. So we started working on this question of, you know, when I'm writing code, there's a lot of stuff that happens that isn't actually sort of solving the problem I want to solve. It's just things I have to think about as far as nuts and bolts moving around. And we, we, we wanted to sort of go back and ask ourselves the questions, is this complexity necessary? Do I really need this to make an application that works well for the task I'm trying to solve? Or is it just something that sort of gets in the way that I got to fight all the time? Mm-hmm. And if, if we sort of did a, you know, a thought experiment in getting rid of that, what would that language look like? And that's really what sort of started to inspire this project. Mm-hmm. And so what was the, the the project that we're here to discuss today? Um, what is that? And I guess you've, you've given a, a kind of overall um, intention, but what what problem were you specifically trying to solve with it? Um, and And how did you end up with what you ended up with? Well, so let me, let me say this. So we sort of didn't have necessarily a problem that we wanted to solve so much as a question we wanted to ask, Fair. right? 
So in, in the research group, we're kind of lucky because we can not necessarily focus on business objectives or, you know, what is the engineering problem at hand? We just want to sort of ask some interesting questions and, and see what falls out of there. Mm. So, you know, the question we wanted to ask was if we go back and start from a perfect blank slate and we want to get rid of all the complexity we can in a language in terms of when I'm writing a line of code, how many things do I have to think about? Can we minimize that number of things? And what does that look like? Mm -hmm. And we just wanted to ask that question and, and start from there and then try and figure out how that might work and where that might go. And we're sort of in the, the first steps of that where we had some ideas, we tried to put them out there and now we get to have some fun iterating on that and seeing where it where it leads. And so you ended up with this uh, programming language you're calling Bosky. Um, firstly, let's is there a story behind the name? No, no, I'm I'm not very good at naming things. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know, generally, internally, there's there's a strong push like, hey, don't pick a name that is generic or conflicts with other projects. And you know, so they have a very nice tool that you just recommends some names. Okay. Uh, this name come up, came up there and I was like, well, you know, um, that sounds like a pretty good name. Um, forest yeah, kind of has a nice connotation, uh, doesn't conflict with anything really too much when you search. And uh, so I, I went with it, you know, nice and easy. I'm not as clever as other people. Obviously, Microsoft already maintains a handful of, of language names that are mostly single letters, so <laughs> bar yeah, yeah. a couple of them. So uh, I think those are uh, it's a little overdone, I guess. And what would you, um, how would you describe the, the the basic style of the language? You know, people describe languages as being Python-esque or Ruby-esque or JavaScript-esque. What would you describe Bosky yeah. as kind of from a top level? From a top level? So I think, you know, uh, I've, I've spent a lot of time recently interacting with the Node community and TypeScript. Uh, so, you know, I was really inspired by some of the you know way those languages were set up in terms of syntax and the type system and the general block structure and flow um, as as a grad student i also really enjoyed writing code in uh, ml this this meta language standard ml of new jersey um, and and that sort of inspired a lot of my thinking in terms of functional programming design and writing code without loops and how that might look and so we sort of took these two languages as a general inspiration of starting point and sort of merged them together. So if you, if you look at the code uh, and you're coming from like a TypeScript or a JavaScript background, it should look very familiar, especially if you're used to writing code with like um, underscore or low dash in a more functional style, it should be pretty natural for you. And are there any uh, particular application use cases you think it's, it will be suited for? Or is it fairly general purpose? Um, you know, at this point, that that isn't our priority. We just sort of wanted to understand what the implications of some of these design decisions and, and different perspective for thinking about how, what a language does and how to put it together. Um, so that's, that's a little bit further out, but kind of from what we've seen in people trying to write applications for the cloud, particularly if you're trying to do a serverless style application, um, it seems like it might fit in very well in that niche. But again, it's early days, and that, that's not really our focus. We're, we're more just want to explore the ideas. So digging a little bit behind the theory here, there's, there's sort of two terms that you mention a lot in the descriptions that uh, maybe we should just unpack for, for anyone who's a little unfamiliar. So you mentioned kind of in your justification um, that a lot of programming languages are still somewhat based on the the structured programming style from the 1970s um, and that Bosky is much more in this functional world. So for people who are not familiar with what those two mean, what would kind of your summary of the differences between those two language those two language styles be? Sure, sure. So so I think let's go back to sort of structured programming. Mm -hmm. Um, so as you said, this sort of came to the fore in the 1970s. And, and previously, people were using, you know, go-tos and just arrays of bytes, more or less, as their primitives for, for composing pro programs. 
And for anybody who's tried to write code, you know, in assembly or in using jumps or go-tos, um, you know, you can do some clever things, but it, it's very difficult to write large, composable, modular pieces of software. And, and so the big insights there were, well, you know, really when people are using go-tos, they're using the same patterns of these go-to jumps over and over again. And rather than sort of manually writing out all the details, we should introduce these higher level concepts called loops. And you have for loops and while loops. And these are patterns that encapsulate the things people really try and do with go-tos in much more compact and understandable representations. And, and similarly with the introduction of abstract data types, they said, well, you know, instead of having an array of bytes, which you need to manually remember which index is which field in a record, let's create a record concept that just encapsulates all of this very nicely. So you can see it uh, as, a, as a both raising the level of abstraction that people are writing code at, but also um, capturing common things that people try and do and removing all this incidental complexity about having to manually re-implement this every time and make it just a primitive in the language. And so that was a, a big revolution in how people could build software reliably, modularly, and, and, and deploy it effectively. Um, so that's sort of structured programming and how that evolved. And of course, you see this really carries along the imperative nature of I'm on a VAX or an x86 today where I have a program counter, I have memory, um, records live at a certain location in memory. The other vein I talk about was this sort of ML family of functional languages. And these maybe come from maybe a bit more, let's say, mathematical perspective, where I have functions as like a mathematical function. It will take in a value, which is some abstract record or tuple. Um, it doesn't necessarily live at a memory location. And I will never mutate that object. I will just compute new derived values from it, and I will return a derived value at the end of the function. So much more sort of mathematically um, based. And people sort of favor this uh, functional approach for reasoning because you don't have to deal with some of the complexity of mutation and side effects and you know what things might change during the execution of the, the function. I must admit, because... The, the functional world is something I've, I've been to lots of talks on, but I've never had any particular need for it in myself. So I sort of still am partially understanding it. I, I, I get I get the 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 concepts without ever having had to use them. So without having the the, the practical knowledge of them. Um, but I know there was a lot of conference talks around functional languages a couple of years ago. Uh, and would you say that's still kind of uh, a very popular programming paradigm at the moment? Or? Uh, yes, I, I mean, absolutely. And I think, yeah. um, as you say, for a lot of people, it can be a little diff like, difficult to get used to programming in a functional mindset. And I think from an ergonomic standpoint in, in the sort of traditional functional programming languages, like if you look at Lisp or Scheme or ML or OCaml or Haskell, um, they're very interesting, they're very powerful, but they might have some features that make them a little uncomfortable for people to use in many cases. And mm. you know, this is just a, a, almost an aesthetics thing. Um, but if you look at even the way sort of JavaScript has been moving, uh, mm. it's been really adopting a lot of sort of the principles or in the paradigms of functional programming, but putting them in a way that's more accessible and maybe more ergonomically amenable for developers. So, mm. you know, if, if you look at libraries like Lodash or underscore uh, immutable, um, these are all basically bringing this sort of functional processing and immutable data to JavaScript because it's easy to write code quickly that puts these pieces together in a way that doesn't surprise you. Um, I think a great example yeah, of this is, you know, people in the React and Redux community, where rather than having some sort of state object and UI tree that you manually mutate and update as you go to get an updated UI, you have a state object. And from that object, you functionally render your UI. And if you want to change that state, you create a new state object and can re-render your UI in this pure manner, right? And so this is a very functional concept. Mm -hmm. And 
it's very powerful and it makes it very easy to, you know, sort of reason about and change some of this behavior. And you can see they've put it together in a great package that is really accessible to developers and is, is really allowing people to build some great stuff. So, you know, I think that's, that's the challenge is how do you get some of these core ideas that are really powerful and expose them in a way that really matches what people are trying to do and, and, and it doesn't trip them up somehow. And and why do you think people would be reaching for a functional language? Is it due to the the growth of uh, cloud computing and even then the taking that to the extreme, the, the serverless computing, because it's easier to not have to worry too much about state or are there other reasons? Well, so I think what you said is worry about state is sort of the, the crux of it. So yeah. the beauty of a functional language is when I call a function, I know that the only thing it's going to do is return a new value. I don't have to mm -hmm. wonder, is it going to chain, mutate the first parameter? Is it going to update some global state that I wasn't expecting? Like this is, this is the sort of accidental complexity I think we refer to in the paper. Mm -hmm. I don't have to worry about any surprise side effects. Looking at that line of code, I know exactly what I can expect it to do without having to look at the implementation at all. Mm -hmm. um, and so, that's what enables people to sort of start building more modular software and quickly integrating and testing these components because they don't interact in spooky at a distance ways, right? Uh, and so, you know, that was sort of one of the things we took inspiration from is here's a great way where you can eliminate accidental complexity, make it easier to build software more quickly and more confidently. Um, where else can we do that? Hmm. So let's dig a little bit more into some of the language details. I'm mostly, um, I'm mostly drawing here from uh, your language overview and the GitHub repository. Sure thing. Um, so first, the first, well, not the first paragraph, but the kind of first, uh, the first paragraph that isn't table of contents. <laughs> a little bit down the page. Uh, one of the things that uh, grabbed me because there's a reason I, I'm going to get into this, and I, I may go off into. Um, areas are not completely relevant to the language. We'll see. That you say the language is designed for writing code that is simple, obvious, and easy to reason about for both humans and machines. That final part of the sentence is quite fascinating in, in its own way for humans and machines. <laughs> yes. I, I don't really know what you might mean by that. That's a kind of mysterious statement. Yes, I'm happy to elaborate on that, but we can, we can come <laughs> back if needed. No, yeah, um, sure. No, I think now seems a good time before we sure, delve sure. into other details. Yeah, what do you mean by that? So, so I'll, I'll, let me tell a little bit of my history and story. So, I was a, a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, eager-to-go grad student, mm. and um, you know, I said, "Well, I should, I should tackle an important problem." And uh, I was very interested in compilers, and I, yep. you know, read a great compiler textbooks, and I read compiler papers. And they all had amazing optimizations you could do. You can make your code faster. You can make your code smaller. You can make your application, you know, behave more predictably in terms of runtime performance and jitter. And I was like, this is great. We should implement all of this. And uh, as I was reading through the details, I saw that most of them said, oh, in order to do this, I need to understand in detail the way the application has allocated memory and the way pointers are sharing memory across, you know, data structures in the application. And so I said to myself, well, if I, you know, all of these depend on understanding pointer analysis, and that is a key problem to enabling amazing compiler work. So as a, as a grad student, I should attack this important problem and I should solve the pointer analysis problem. And uh, that would be a, a very important result. And so I spent many years working on this. And I got some interesting results. I think I published some nice papers. But what I learned was that doing pointer analysis was very, very hard. <laughs> and uh, one of my favorite papers from the about 19, the, the mid-90s, I believe, or early 2000s, is called Pointer Analysis, Why Haven't We Solved This Problem Yet? And, uh, you know, it's 20 years later and many more papers have been published on pointer analysis. There are many interesting ideas in them, but it's still an unsolved problem. 
And it, it seems that there are just fundamental things about like object mutation and the aliasing relation that make it very, very potentially permanently impractical to have as a general purpose analysis for a language like Java or, or C sharp. And so one of the reasons to eliminate this, these, these sources of accidental complexity that we talk about here is not only are they confusing for humans, but they also can make automated reasoning about code to answer questions that would enable incredible compiler optimizations or enable you to find deep subtle bugs without having to do testing or without relying on users to report them um, are prohibited by these types of complexity that creep in. So the goal is if we eliminate this, can we make it easier for humans to understand what the software is doing, but also make it easier for automated tools to understand what the software is doing and provide you either better performance, better bug finding, or the ability to, if I'm doing like a semantic version update, is it going to break my, is it a patch? You know, right now I have to sort of do this is like, what is my gut intuition as a developer? But we'd like to verify that if you think your update is a patch, that it really is a patch. It's not going to go break somebody's software if they update to the latest version of your package, right? So, you know, this ability to automatically have mechanical tools support you with something we also were hoping to make progress on by the elimination of complexity here. And, and for me, get some closure on my um, PhD thesis. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it can take some time. It does. It's, it does. it's quite fascinating. I think um, you've sort of opened up a, a whole uh, world of potential applications there, which um, could probably be an entire discussion in itself. I, I, <laughs> so there's quite a lot packed into that mysterious half sentence then. Yes, yeah. Um yeah. Okay. I think the, we're not there the, yet, so I want to no, 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 for sure. Right? I mean I think <laughs> we're really excited about going forward yeah. is exploring more yeah. in this project. So Yeah, yeah. Um but the, the first half of that sentence was actually the bit that first grabbed me, and I think now is probably less interesting than what you've just said. But uh, I'll go with it anyway. Sure, sure. Um and that was um Simple, obvious, and easy to reason. And I think the, 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 the thing that is fairly clear with a language like Bosky is that um, whilst they may be true to the sorts of people who want to, to use it, I'm guessing the, the language isn't really designed for a beginner to programming. It's designed for people who have probably been using other languages for a while and have hit some barriers with those and are looking for something to solve particular particular problems. It's not something that's really aimed at beginner programmers. Or am I making some assumptions there? Well, I you know this this first sentence, and I noticed there were several comments about this in various various and, searches. And I have a very yeah. specific reason for asking this sure, question, sure. which we'll, we'll get to into in a minute. In a minute, but yeah, sure. You know, simple and obvious—they're very loaded terms. Yeah, right? yeah. I, you know, and you can come in and you can say, well, like you know, a simple programming language is one that has the fewest numbers of primitive operators, right? Mm. And or the simplest uh, context-free grammar that describes this, the syntax of the language. That's that's one definition of simple. And, you know, I think we, Bosky is probably not the simplest language from, from that metric. Um, I think what we were going for more in terms of simple is, if I look at a, it, let, me, let me put it this way, is sort of a principle of least astonishment. And this is sort of a term that comes from like, uh, if I'm building a UI and I have a user that's going to click on a button, uh, I want to sort of follow the principle of least astonishment that is the least unsurprising thing should be happening with when they interact with any UI element on the page. And so that was sort of the, the version of simple and obvious that we were going for. That is, if I look at a line of code in a Bosky program, it should be in a sense very boring. I should not be astonished in some way that it changes some global variable or some mysterious thing happens. I should look at that line of code. I should be able to see what the arguments in are. I should be able to see what the result is. And I should not really have to go understand much else about the program to understand what that line is trying to accomplish in a sense. Mm. So that was the notion of simplicity we were going for. Now, as you say, from a beginner, um, 
the language is more complex to learn than some others because there are more, let's say, primitive concepts that you would need to understand in order to look at a block of code and know what that block of code does. But once you've, the, well, the, our hope is that once you've passed this initial hurdle of picking up the primitive concepts, that as a beginner, it becomes much easier to learn to write interesting programs in because you don't have to suddenly learn that there's this thing called global variables that change mm -hmm. mysteriously, or mm -hmm. that there is by reference versus by value parameter passing, and they have different implications on how a method may mutate some variable mysteriously for you. So in that sense, you know, if you're talking to a beginner and you say, oh, this function takes arguments, this record and that record, and it returns a third record, that's very simple for them to understand, mm. a very simple concept to understand. Um, if you say it takes this record and that record, but it's going to mysteriously change the first record while you're calling it, then that requires, that can be more confusing for some people. Yeah. So yeah. Um, it, it's a bit of a trade-off. Uh, you know, I think, I think we'll have to see, there's been some lively discussion on the GitHub repo on various uh, syntax traces. So we'll, it'll evolve. Yeah, and actually, it's interesting how you answered that because the very the the particular reason I had in the back of my mind for asking this. So I predominantly come from more of a an educator background. I, in addition to kind of doing the the in quote marks tech journalism stuff, I do technical writing, I do training materials, things like that. And I had an experience a few years ago where um, here in Germany we had the the big influx of Syrian refugees, and there were one of the various schemes that was run was a, a coding school. Oh, yeah. um, and we were teaching Ruby on Rails to, um, to, to these refugees. And something that really stuck in my mind was that to, to more experienced programmers, something like Ruby and then Rails was, was uh, good at the time, it's sort of not as popular as it used to be, because it abstracted a lot of this kind of boring boilerplate code that uh, experienced developers got bored with but of course for a beginner abstracting all this meant that they didn't really know what was going on um, and you would have like a kind of shorthand loop for example um, and an experienced program would think wow what great syntax it's just like four characters or whatever but um, an inexperienced program would look at it and not have the foggiest idea what was going on because it abstracted so much Whereas using something very verbose like PHP or uh, meant like it was un, it was ungainful and not and but it was also very simple because you could see exactly what was happening um, and you would learn and then of course in a year's time you'd probably think oh my god this is horrible syntax I'm going to learn something else that's <laughs> that's more abstracted yeah. but your, your answer there was actually kind of interesting because you kind of lose one thing but gain another so if you you know, those sorts of languages have their positives in that way that they're very easy to understand, but then they're very hard to understand because you have a lot of this kind of convenience mechanisms that aren't always clear what they're doing. Um, yeah. And you get stuck very quickly because some, something kind of automagical is just happening. But like, what was it? I don't know. You know, so, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. And I think another yeah. interesting example here you sort of touched on is, is loops. Right, yeah. like when a developer, you know, a new a new student comes at programming, and you say, well, suppose I have a list of objects, and I want to do the same operation on each one of them. They're like, yes, I understand that. That's mm. a concept I understand. And if you say, well, here's a thing called map, which does that for you, or filter, which does that for you, that's great because they already have that intuition, and mm. they can just use it. But if then you have to say, oh, let me tell you about this thing called a loop. And, mm -hmm. you know, there are different kinds. And now you have indexing bounds and you have to pick your iteration order. You know, that's something that, um, you know, again, you're, you have to introduce all these concepts that aren't actually relevant to accomplishing the task they want and actually obscures, like, I have a for loop. Well, is it a filter? Is it a map? Is it, yeah. you, know, uh, yeah. you know, a min or a max? Well, now I have to go look at the individual operations, low-level operations to answer the question about what was I trying to do, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a very good point. 
things like um, map filters and even with sort of the world they come from, like maps and reduces and, and functionalities. I never really thought of it like that. I, I have I have re come back into JavaScript after a fair break um, when uh, things like maps and filters didn't really exist, and it took me a little bit of time to get my head round them, even though I kind of knew what they were for from having also done some previous work in um, in NoSQL databases. Uh, and I, but I couldn't quite connect the two because I was so used to using loops for things. Yeah. Um, but you're right. Actually, once you do, you kind of switch your head around to thinking, well, I want to basically work over a, a set of data and do something to it. Um, and yes, loops were just the way we always used to do that. Um, it doesn't mean they were the best way. Uh, in fact, you know, we're now starting to realize they're not. Um, it's actually, it's, it's, it's a good, it's a good perspective. Like I think from someone like myself and, and many people who have come from this structural, uh, background, we kind of look for things that are missing instead of looking for ways to accomplish what we want to accomplish, I guess. It's a little aside here, but, you know, sort of as a warm up to this project, because we did have this view that, Hey, loops. You know, if I'm a functional programmer, filter map reduce, that's all I need, right? You know, mm -hmm. and if I'm like a C programmer, it's, well, you know, I need fours, I need whiles, I need, you know, to be able to do all this crazy indexing, right? That's, that's how you write iteration in C or C sharp or Java. And, and we were kind of like, hey, you know, where is there some way we can do an empirical study? of all the loops that people are writing in, you know, hundreds of thousands of lines of C-sharp code and actually see how many different conceptual loops or idioms there are for writing these loops. Like, are people writing the same patterns over and over and over again? Mm -hmm. Or are people writing actually different loop, radically different loop behaviors? And no matter how many lines of code we look at, we still see new idiomatic behaviors that are coming out. And so I had a, a great intern who had done some work on um, applying statistical machine learning methods to source code. And mm -hmm, we were mm -hmm. able to go and look at, you know, several hundred thousand lines of C-sharp code, identify and classify the structure, the idioms of the loops that you saw. And when we say idioms, it's like, you know, four blank equals zero blank is less than, you know, a dot length blank plus plus. And you're like, oh, okay, I'm going through an array one element at a time. And then in there, we see an if body with a copy to B and we say, oh, that's a filter, right? You know, that would be an idiom we would identify. And we basically were able to learn and find a very nice saturation curve and say that, hey, basically 90, 95% plus of all loops you see in half a million lines of C-sharp code can be classified into a reasonable set of, of, of these filter map reduce group group by you know these functor operations you would expect to see and and that was really inspiring and you know drove some of this work to say hey you know people are writing the same operation over and over and over again just as a loop because that's what they have not because there's something intrinsic about it that they really need yeah, yeah I mean, for there sure. are some cases where you need unstructured iteration but just like go to um, it seems to be a very small set of, of actual cases that you really do need to go to or you do need yeah. a structured loop. Yeah. I mean, this, the, the, the language overview is obviously fairly long. So just to pick out a few other, uh, I guess, elements that will be familiar. So you do retain the kind of classical um, control flow, like if, then, else, Um yeah. So yeah, that, yeah, and there's yeah. no surprises there. It works exactly the way most people would expect. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What What would be some of the other kind of? I mean, I, I'm now kind of scrolling up and down your page, realizing there's many, many, many things we could talk about. So, to you, what would be some of the other kind of? Um, let's say, let's say your your favorite highlights of of the language design that you're particularly proud of. Sure, sure. So, I mean, I think, you know, on a lot of things, we uh, we went for like, hey, there people have done a lot of great stuff in programming languages, uh, programming language design. Let's borrow some great ideas and polish them up a little bit where we can. So one example of that is non-nullable types. 
there's been, you know, TypeScript does this, um, you know, Haskell has done this kind of thing for years. So we just wanted to go and take this notion of non-nullability and Elvis operators and just make sure it was unified throughout the, the operations you could do and make it really easy to use. So the language has, uh, you know, nonable types and non-nonable types, and it has an easy way to unpack all of these very clean, just borrows a lot from TypeScript really. Um, but I think that worked out, worked out very nicely. Another one, which is a little more interesting and you, I've seen some early versions of it, you know, and if anybody, if I, if I fail to mention a language that has this, I'm very sorry. We tried really hard to try and, you know, credit languages that have done this first, but it's, it's a big space and sometimes we miss things. But, um, one, one challenge that comes up a lot in functional languages is I have a, you know, a record of 10 fields and I want to update two of these. So now I need to write code that sort of creates a new record, copies eight of those fields and puts two new values in there. And this is both very boring to write. It's easy to get wrong. And if I add an 11th field to that record, I now need to go everywhere where I was doing this sort of copy update constructor and add that new field. And so, I, you know, now I miss it and my code's broken and, and, and it's surprising. So F sharp has the ability to say, I want to take a record and I want to change some set of fields in that record and copy all the rest, but I don't have to specify all the rest. So it's sort of doing like a, like a bulk update copy thing. And this is very nice because it eliminates the need to do all of these individual atomic operations. Um, it sort of captures what you want to do again, more clearly in the code. I want to take that record and change these two fields rather than talking about each field individually. And it also starts to give your code a bit more algebraic flavor. Like rather than talking about individual fields, I'm talking about sort of doing algebraic operations on records. And we wanted to take this idea and run with it a little bit and say, hey, if I'm doing sort of this algebraic transformations, I don't wanna just update, but I wanna project, I wanna merge, I wanna do all these other things. So we have uh, what we call bulk algebraic data operations. And what this means is like, if I have a record and I wanna get a new record with only a subset of those fields, I can project those out. And if I project out a couple records, I can merge them together in, in atomic operations. I can even take a record and project out a new record of a given subtype. So this makes it really easy to sort of start just moving these data chunks around as atomic things rather than continually having to destructure and restructure them. Hmm. I think, um, yeah, I think I could start to see how that would be useful. And one of the, uh, you've got a, another sort of, I, to me, feels slightly related to that. Uh, I guess just in terms of uh, data type flexibility, this typed strings ah, concept, yes, yes. which, yeah. Um, yeah, so instead of just having a generic string, you can have a string of a, uh, well, you've got here an example of zip code or something like this, or string name, for example. Um, I mean, how subtle can this be? Can you then at some other point in the language define um, some kind of uh, validation for that? Yes, yes. So this is actually, this is, thanks for bringing this up. This is some great work that I was able to do with some collaborators at the University of College London. And um, it's it's very nice. So like, like the idea is that strings are sort of the universal dumping ground for data <laughs> that's structured, but I don't actually want to go and, you know, create an object for it and everything. Um, and so, but the danger is you end up with APIs that are like, you know, foo takes string, string, string. And, you know, as what, what are those strings supposed to mean? I can easily get parameters swapped and we want to just give a little more structure to that string. And what these, these type strings do is they allow us to sort of par parameterize what values of a string can be in that, that object based on some type that we know about. And that type that we know about, so in our example, uh, zip code, there would be a class called zip code somewhere in your program, and it would have a method called try parse, which mm. basically defines a parser for a string that either accepts the string and returns an object of the type or returns none. And mm. the contract is that if you have a string of zip code, 
that if you call zip codes try parse on that string, it will successfully parse. So the user can actually extend this arbitrarily for whatever um, particular types and strings they care about in their application. Now, in, in Bosky, we just did this try parse. So you manually have to write this parser yourself. And that means it can be as complex or simple as you want, but it is a bit, uh, at this point, it's a bit heavyweight and cumbersome. You do have some boilerplate mm. on it. Mm. Um, my, my collaborators at UCL uh, experimented with some nice stuff. Like in a lot of cases, uh, you could, the parser is really nothing more than a regular expression. So can you basically do something like a type def the zip code is some regex, right? And it would automatically build the class and that string subtype for you. Or if you use um, parser combinator grammars or uh, some other things, can you actually have a decidable type system on these string subtypes? So, so this, you actually have a lot of power there in how you, you build these. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's quite fascinating. I, I could start to see how it really, it would force programmers to really think about this because you know the reason a string is a dumping ground is let's take for example a zip code um you know a zip code takes multiple different formats around the world so you'd really have to be very careful about how you create this parser to match all those patterns otherwise you would get errors very easily where the traditional um approach would be just use a generic string and anything's accepted so <laughs> which 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 is easier to code but may cause further problems down the line so um yeah yeah, yeah. now the yeah. nice thing with this is that by sort of lifting this type into the the nominal type system like zip code is just a class basically yeah. you get all the subtyping on the string that you would get on the class so as you say i might have an abstract concept of zip code and I might have specializations for the US, you know, the UK, Germany. I don't, I, you know, this is where I get into the weeds. You know, I don't know how many zip codes, but you can subtype all of them. And then the string of zip code would actually know to check all of those subtypes as well. So it does structure pretty, pretty nicely there. Yeah, that's, uh, that's quite, that's uh, quite a fascinating idea, actually. Uh, and yeah, uh, we've, I mean, we've, we're starting to run out of time. We've barely oh, touched sure, the sure. surface of, um, of what's, what's, what's in here. So I strongly suggest people go and have a bit more of a dig. But let's go up a level a little bit. Um, so what, what do you intend the language to be? Is it a, a compiled language, an interpreted language? Uh, how, do, how, how, is it, how is it run over some code? Uh, so today, you know, like I said, we're just, we wanted to get this out there early to get people's feedback. If people want to, you know, participate and contribute, we wanted to sort of let everybody get on the ground floor at the same time as we did. Uh, so the runtime today is just a very slow, very simple interpreter written mm -hmm. in TypeScript. It just gives us a, sort of a reference semantics for what the language should do or we think it should do. Mm -hmm. um, going back to what I said earlier, you know, as a grad student, I was very excited about co compilers and opportunities to do more efficient, yep. Yep. you know, novel compilation. And so my hope is that as we develop some of these machine reasoning methods, we're able to go and start building some very advanced and high performance compilers targeting, you know, I think two, two, two targets of interest for me are WebAssembly. And yeah. uh, just going maybe to machine code via LLVM and LLVM backend. Yeah. yeah. So those are sort of the two things we'd like to target. But really, this is sort of experimental. So we'll try some things. If they don't work, we'll you know adapt and try other things. We really want to learn as we go. Yeah. So I think yeah. I think there's a you know a very open ended set of compilation targets. We haven't committed to a specific you know canonical runtime at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, if people are interested in, in getting involved and finding out more, you already have a, a fairly active GitHub repository. I don't know when you started started this project, but I mean, in terms of GitHub history, it's fairly recent. <laughs> I'm guessing yeah. there was a lot of work done before that. Yeah, but, uh, I, we've been doing, I mean, it's probably about a year of, you know, sort of prototyping. It's not bad, it's not bad. <laughs> not bad, not bad. It's know. not bad at all, yeah. Um, 
But uh, you do have, yeah, it's actually a, a pretty comprehensive repository here. And you, as you said earlier, there's already some healthy discussion going on. Um, a, a little, not so much on the, the pull request, which would make sense, but a lot of issues, which is probably people discussing, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and maybe taking issue more than anything. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, um, good. We like feedback too. You know, you don't have to, <laughs> have, to have to have a solution if you have a thought or, you know, yeah. it's a research yeah. project, right? It's yeah. great to get the, get the ideas. So, so there's some steps here about building and testing and command line execution. The, I was, one of my questions was going to be the file extension. It's BSQ. Um, yeah. I, I do know there's, a, there's a, another open source project out there called BISC, which I wonder if has a similar file extension, but it's a very different world, uh, so I wouldn't worry too much. Um, and, of course, uh, you're also providing some very basic Visual Studio Code integration, um, which makes a lot of sense. Um, especially with that uh, current TypeScript uh, tires, I guess. Yeah. Um, and, well, obviously it's very new, very early days. You've already – and the, the, the repository is littered with um, to-dos and not implemented yet and ideas and things like that. But I guess kind of if I was to, to hold you to um, a handful of points, what's kind of on your immediate roadmap of things you want to do next? Well, so I think we there are two things that are uh, big priorities for us. Uh, as I mentioned, one of the big questions we had was, you know, this enables, uh, this eliminates a lot of complexity that potentially enables uh, deep understanding and reasoning about source code. And that is, at this point in time, uh, a belief. We've done some hand studies, but I have a couple great interns that are going to come and try and build very sophisticated symbolic analysis engines for the source code, both for correctness uh, and to be able to say this particular application is entirely free of bugs or this application may crash and here's a witness input that will cause that crash so you can debug it. And also to do resource analysis. So what is the big O complexity of your entire application? Uh, how does its runtime scale as a function of your input? What is the max memory that you can use? Those are some pretty foundational questions uh, that we would need if we want to build any sort of sophisticated tooling. Uh, they're also sort of a, a limit test of how far we can push automated reasoning. And, mm -hmm. and I think that's something I'd love to answer uh, sooner rather than later. So I'm going to have some great students. They're going to come and work with me over the next six months on, on that kind of stuff. Um, a little larger is this question of Bosky does not provide any IO natively. It's kind of like JavaScript. It doesn't have its own IO libraries. It depends on a host to drive it and drive its interaction with the environment. And what that what we think those hosts should look like is um, is unclear at this point. So we need to do a little sort of design experiments to understand what those hosts could look like. Uh, do we want them to run on the command line? Should they be sort of cloud and serverless focused based on like mm. web hooks or something? And what sort of environment should they provide? So that's a little bit sort of abstract design, but those I think are two things that are um, in my mind, the most, the most pressing and the most open questions around the language. Uh, there's a lot of other stuff that's, that's fun and great, you know, some type system stuff. Um, playing around with compilers a little bit, but I think those are the two that we want to focus on right at the beginning. Yeah, cool. And uh, for those who are interested in digging further, the GitHub repository is github.com slash Microsoft slash Bosky. We better uh, clarify the spelling of that, B-O-S-Q-U-E language. And you also have some... Um, the, the base research papers and I guess setting out the, the aims of the project on the Microsoft research site. That's a quite a long URL, so yeah. I may uh, not read all, it out. They're but, all linked, uh, through, um, they're all linked yeah. through the GitHub repo as well. Go to GitHub, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Try to keep it easy, compact, one-stop shopping. That was my interview with Mark Maron from Microsoft. As mentioned earlier in the show, I have a lot of interviews to process right now. Uh, I am about to edit the second episode of The Enthusiastic Amateur. I have all the interviews from KubeCon, and I have some other interviews I'm also going through too. And I um, 
am about to set up recording for the third episode of the Enthusiastic Amateur, so plenty coming there. If you happen to be in Vilnius, Minsk or Krakow in the next week or so, I will be at events in all of those cities. So you can find more details at christiancharlotte.com slash events. I've been getting back into the uh, the momentum of uh, blog posts recently. So also on christiancharlotte.com you can find some of the recent blog posts I've written. And I've back posted a bunch of articles I've been writing for Cowrie over the past few months as well, which were missing for a little while, in case you're wondering what I had actually been doing. <laughs> If you've enjoyed the show, please find previous episodes at christianchillet.com slash podcasts and the accompanying newsletter at the same website slash newsletters. And you can contact me also on the same website. Please rate, review, share wherever you listen to the show. Uh, The audience numbers are slowly growing, actually, and I'm about to start some advertising campaigns. So hopefully we'll get a little bit of an influx soon. And I'd always love to have your feedback about anything I have spoken about. But in the meantime, if you have been, thank you very much for listening.